ready for the word today? Man, I'm excited. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. We're going to camp out mostly in the book of Jeremiah today, but we're going to travel through this book quite a bit. I tell you that to kind of set this up because one of the things that's helpful to know when you're studying the Bible is chronology, the order of events and the time span that events take place in. So you take a book like Jeremiah, and what you may not realize is that these events in all of these chapters actually take place over a period of time that spans nearly five decades. Jeremiah prophesied for over 40 years to five different kings of Judah under their reign. So you see events that might happen in the early chapters, and then you're reading into the middle chapters, and you might have read that in a day, but those events may have taken 10, 20, 30 years, something like that to pass by. So the understanding of chronology is helpful and important to our interpretation of Scripture, okay? And I'll, I'm going to unpack this today in a way where we see things that are happening early, and then things that end up taking place later on to the nation of Israel in the word that I think God may be speaking to us today. Okay, let's read uh, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord God, let not, wise man, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. We honor you and we worship you in this place today. God, we are here for one thing and for one thing only. To encounter you. To hear from you. God, we don't just come together for a little pick-me-up or a little motivational pep. God, we come to you for life itself. We are here today hungry and desperate for you, God. If you don't speak and if you don't move, then nothing can happen of significant value in our lives. We're here to meet with you, Lord, today. We humbly petition you to speak and to move our hearts. Would you move our hearts today, God, in the direction that you want them to go? We give you all the glory and all of the honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Wow. So I was been studying this book of Jeremiah for weeks now, and uh, a number of weeks ago, this particular passage just struck me. Actually, I'll say it a different way, it's better said, it wrecked me, <laughs> and it's been wrecking me for weeks, and the verse that really grabbed me was that verse when God says to his people, of course, through the prophet, he says, don't glory Power, don't glory in wealth, 
and don't glory in knowledge. If you're going to glory, this is what you glory in, that you know and understand me. It's just like this setting of an order of things that we need to get right. And that hasn't changed from then to today in the slightest bit. But God's saying, what what is it that you are esteeming as the most important thing that you are pursuing with your heart? Wow. Wow. Katie and I last week, a lot of you know this because Pastor Mike mentioned it already when he spoke, um, celebrated our 17-year anniversary. And so that, I'm pretty, thank you for that. I mean, she's just been head over heels in love with me for, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Um, But no, you know, 17 years and and going strong, and I know many have been married longer than that, and so we just, we uh, congratulate you as well. It's such a great witness in the world right now as a a godly marriage, you know. And of course, in the beginning years of our marriage, we had ups and downs like everybody does, and I had a a mentor of mine in my life that gave me some great advice early on, marriage advice, and it's served me well over the years. He said this to me. He said, Matt, you're, you know, an interesting guy. You're very competitive, and you like to win. And I thought, well, doesn't everybody? I mean, I just thought that's how everybody thought. But he said, you're very competitive. You like to win. Um, When you choose to do something, you excel in it, like you, you pursue it, you want to be successful at it, you invest in it, and you want to get great at it. Would you agree? I said, yeah, that's, that's, you're hitting the nail on the head. That's how I approach everything. And um, he said, well, here's, here's an interesting thought. We were talking about marriage. He said, why don't you set out to become an expert in your wife? He said, why don't you seek to master knowing her, her needs, her wants, her desires. I'm sorry, dudes. I know. The guys are like, oh, man, <laughs> killing me, bro. <laughs> uh, but it really, it really did grab me. You know, it was great advice, and, and it's served me well over the years. And listen, I'm not going to say that I've even done it well. I, I've just strived to do it because I know that it's a great approach, that if I know and invest myself in understanding her, her needs, her wants, her desires, how I can please her, and how I can serve her, then that's what's going to lead to a great godly marriage. It's this idea of majoring in something, majoring in things. I don't know if any of, many of you probably been to college, had some higher education, right? In our culture, we really value higher education, and that's great. We go on to higher education beyond high school, and ultimately, we are faced with a set of decisions whenever we do that, and one of those decisions is, what are you majoring in? That was a common question that we used to ask back when I was in college, spent some years at SLU, St. Louis University in business school, and you know, I majored in business, and so we would ask people, like, well, what's your major? Young kids, if that's not a thing anymore, I'm sorry, I think it's a thing. So I know I go around and say, hey, what's your major? What's your major? 
right? What are you majoring in? You ever had those applications you fill out says, what's your highest form of education? You know, see that, like, associate's, bachelor's degree, doctorate, PhD, master's, and then there's some college. You know, see that one? It's like when you check some college, it's like, I majored in social entertainment, all right? Oh, what, what, what is your major? You see, whenever someone tells me what they're majoring in, I don't know about you, but that tells me a number of things intuitively. And really, it probably tells you some things intuitively, too, when you know what they're majoring in. I'm majoring in education. I'm majoring in business. I'm majoring in sociology. It tells me a number of things, and here's a few. One, it tells me where their passion probably lies. They have a heart, and they probably have some God-given gifts that are directed and pointed in that specific area. It, it tells me where they are probably going to invest a lot of time and energy and effort into growing and developing their understanding of a particular field. Because you're going to spend a number of years refining and dialing in to an area of specialization now when you get into higher education and you start to major in something. It tells me where a lot of money is probably going to get invested. A trade-off of resources that we make a decision are worth it because this is the direction that we want to major in. Are you with me? And so the title of the message today, if you're taking notes, is Higher Education. Higher Education. And I'm going to ask you two questions today as we go through this message. I'm going to ask you two questions. And so here's the first one. What are you majoring in? What are you majoring in? You see, Jeremiah says to the people... And it's the word of the Lord. He says, do not glory in knowledge. If you're going to glory, don't glory in power or might. Don't glory in wealth. You say it like this, don't glory in intelligence. Don't glory in power and reputation. And don't glory in riches. He says, don't do any of that. If you're going to glory, you need to glory in one thing, one thing, and that is in how you know and understand me. You say to glory in something, when you study that, it means to shine the brightest in. Isn't that interesting? Shine the brightest in, the thing that I am most committed to and most devoted to. And you got to understand that these things... You know, power, influence, uh, wealth, knowledge, intelligence. None of these things are bad things in themselves. In fact, scriptures indicate other places where God will actually award things like this as a blessing to those that are serving him. So then those things in themselves are actually not bad. It's important to note that. What the problem is, is when they become the thing in which we glory. You get that? When they become the thing in which we major at the expense and minoring in something else that we need to be majoring in. He says, don't do that. In fact, 
where we look at things that we're called to do, where we would have influence, where we would have wealth or resources, where we would have understanding and knowledge and wisdom. We look at things we're called to do, and one of the things that we can understand from Scripture is that when actually God is first, and He is number one in our heart, then everything else becomes sharper and more effective in the way we go about it. It's a setting of first principle. When God is first, everything else begins to come in order. When God is not, everything else is in disorder. And so that's what God is saying to his people. He's saying, listen, you are finding your glory. You are shining the brightest. You are pursuing with your whole heart other things that are not me. And that's where we have the problem. These things aren't bad in themselves. It's the reversal of the order that you find yourself in that creates the challenge that I want to talk to you about. The word to know, to know him, is interesting because it means, it's actually a verb, not a noun, and it means experiential knowledge or encounter, awareness found by cultivating communion. So God is saying, here's the thing that's most important, is how you walk with me. How you encounter and ex your experiential knowledge. You know me at a depth that you can only know because we walk so closely together through your life. And that's the thing in which you should be shining the brightest. You see, what the Lord will do is that he will allow things to happen, Adrian, if our heart is committed to other things, if we're glorying in other things and we want to serve God, he will allow things to happen to shift the very foundations of those things beneath our feet like sinking sand so that they can be revealed for the deficiency that they are in our lives. When that happens, one of two things typically occurs. Either the enemy comes in and attacks and begins to bring discouragement and despair into the heart of a person because they feel like they are losing something that their value is associated with. It's an attack on their identity. And they can go into a deep state of despair. It's the enemy's playground. Or God can begin to shift and reorient the heart of the person so that they can begin to put their trust and put first their knowledge and relationship with him instead of these other things. God will allow those things to take place. And I wonder if maybe in 2020 that might be what God is up to. You think, he says, you want to know me, and the glory in that. And I don't know about you, but I think about things sometimes, and I think about, well, how much can I know him? How much? Paul says, I pray all of the time earnestly that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled up, full, overflowing, constantly with the knowledge of him, his will. He says in another place, I pray that you would be strengthened by the power and might of his spirit in your inner man. And I think to myself, how strong can the inner man get? How much can we know God? I mean, I know that there is a line, there is a place that we can never go beyond in this life 
Because Scripture says that. Paul says we'll always see through a glass dimly. We'll always prophesy in part. And when that which is perfect comes, that which is imperfect will then fade away. All will be revealed and understood for what it is that we can't quite see in this side. But there's a part of me that thinks, but how far can we go, God? Because my heart is that I want to experience in my lifetime where those boundaries lie. Is that your heart? To know where that line is and to get to it and to push up against it. That whenever I do cross over, I could say, Lord, I laid it all out for you. As Paul said, I've reached in, I've pressed forward, and I've longed for everything that you've had for me. Your knowledge and your knowing of him. You see, what's interesting in the context of this story is that the prophet Jeremiah is giving the people, the nation of Israel, he's giving them a warning from God. He's giving them a warning, and he's telling them that there's still time to repent and to turn their hearts back to God. He's saying, destruction will come, judgment will come. But at this particular part in the book of Jeremiah, chronologically, there's still time for the people to turn their hearts back to God. And then he's telling them, if it doesn't happen then judgment is going to come. It's interesting because as we move forward in the chapters of Jeremiah, and we'll see this in a bit, then a shift eventually takes place because the people don't listen and respond. They don't actually respond and do what God is calling them to do that would prevent the judgment. So then judgment is inevitable. And the whole message and teaching, preaching of Jeremiah shifts and changes from there's still time, there's still time, repent, to it's too late. It's coming. Be prepared. God's going to preserve his people in Babylon and in captivity, but get ready and don't resist it because it's coming now. That's interesting, isn't it? So you had time and then it changed. It shifted. Take a look at this. I want to show you. Remember, we were reading in Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll come right back to that in a minute. But in Jeremiah 7 earlier, verses 3 and 4. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. So he's saying, if you change and you hear my warning, I'll keep you here in the promised land flowing with milk and honey in Jerusalem. I'll keep you in this land. If you amend your ways and listen to what I'm saying, this is chapter seven. There's still time. Verse four, he says, do not trust in these lying words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's that all about? This is interesting because the temple, saying the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Those that were in rebellion who had their hearts turned away from God had this false sense of security that just because Solomon's temple was in Jerusalem that, that they would be saved. They had this false sense of security that just because the temple was there, they could do whatever they wanted to do and they didn't have to change their heart and God would still save him, save them. And the prophet says, don't trust in those lying words, the temple, the temple, the temple. He's saying, the temple ain't going to save you. He's saying, that building is not going to save you. Don't trust in the building. The only thing that mattered about that building before was with the, the presence of God was there. And if the presence of God lifts from that place, then that temple is not going to save you. Let me ask you a question today. What are things in our lives, perhaps now, that are where our trust might be, and God's saying, that, that ain't going to save you. 
that's not going to save you. Things get tough, things get hard, things get bad. I don't know, a pandemic happens. <laughs> that's not going to save you. And you're going to find it out real quick. And they found it out. When the Babylonians came in, they found out how much that temple wasn't going to save them. Where's our trust, right? Then we jump over here. Let's go past chapter 9 into chapter 10. And this is where the shift actually happens where God says, okay, it's too late now. Time is up. Chapter 10, verse 17, the prophet says to the people under the inspiration of God, he says, gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. Uh, let me give you a little modern day translation. <laughs> Get your stuff. Get your goods. Pack up. It's time to go. He says it's, it's shifted now. Time is up. And that point always does come if we do not repent and turn and hear what God is saying. Listen to verse 21. He says this, chapter 10. For the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper. And all of their flocks uh, will be scattered. Oh, man. Oh, man. Fear of the Lord when I read this, I've got to tell you. It says, your, your shepherds, your leaders, they've become dull-hearted. We're talking about heart, right? God wants our whole heart. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what this whole message is about. Everything that takes place, captivity, everything. It's all about God doing whatever he needs to do to get the whole heart of his people. He says, even the leaders are dull-hearted. This is what it means. Imperceptible to what? God is saying and doing right now. Oh, what a terrible place for us to get when the shepherds and the leaders can't even hear and know what God is doing because he doesn't even have their whole hearts. Wow. He says it's, it's, they're going to get scattered now. God will not allow permanently leaders in place in his church who do not know and discern and are perceptible to what he is saying and what he is doing in the earth. I, I, I trust the Lord in that thing. But I'm very encouraged that right now we continue to see and hear God is speaking very clearly to his church. I want to encourage you in that. God is speaking very clearly to his church. And I'm not just saying that from a local experience. Preaching words, people saying, wow, that witness is with me, God's speaking to me. I'm talking about other pastors regionally and nationwide that I continue to talk to, continue to hear messages from, and the Lord is speaking with resounding clarity right now, and he's asking his people, do you have a heart to hear what I'm saying and what I'm doing? Is your heart whole for me in a way where you can hear and understand what it is that I'm up to. Does that make sense? We must be perceptible. So this response in uh, chapter 9 that Jeremiah gives, where he says, don't glory in wealth, knowledge, and, uh, and power, glory in me. It's, it's a response, actually, to the mourning of the people. There were warnings in the early chapters, and then they begin to mourn and cry. God help us, it's, get, it's, it's starting to get bad, okay? It's starting to get bad. The, the enemies are starting to come in. Things are starting to go downhill. And they're crying out, 
God, don't you see we're suffering, we're suffering, we're suffering. So the Lord says, yeah, I do see. And here's my response to that. Don't glory in might, don't glory in riches, and don't glory in your own knowledge. If you're going to glory, glory in how you know me. Major in that and minor in all of these other things. That's his response. He doesn't say, oh, I hear your suffering and your cries. Let me just go and fix that for you. He says, I hear them, and here's what I'm trying to say to you that you need to hear. Turn your heart back to me. And this whole situation can change. I know a lot of us have kids, right? And we've got a bunch of candy right now and all this stuff that's from this weekend. And the kids come up to you and they say, oh, my stomach is hurting. I'm so sick. And then what do we do? We don't say, oh, poor thing. Let me just, let me just coddle you. Let me just comfort you. Oh, you poor thing. Let's just figure out how to help that tummy ache. We say, well, you shouldn't have ate all that candy. And they, if they know my stomach hurts, I'm going to go eat some more candy. Help me. Oh, let me coddle you while you eat some more candy. <laughs> no. So, well, you're, you're in this place because you ate all of this candy. And if you go and keep trying to eat more candy, uh, of course, I'm going to try to tell you that's the whole reason you find yourself in the place that you're in right now anyway. That's what God says. He's like, I'm trying to help you see something that you're not even looking for. You're asking for me to bring relief in the land, and I'm telling you the whole reason it's happening is because I don't have your whole heart, and I'm trying to get you back to the place where I have your whole heart. And as we will discover and see, folks, this is something big that you got to get in this. As we will discover and see, God ultimately says, Okay, if I've got to allow you to come out into a hardship of captivity to get your heart back to me, then that's what I'm going to do to get it. You see, they made that choice, actually. Isn't that something? But in the hardship, God has a plan. You see, we cry out many times and we pray, God, do something. God, move in this nation. God, stop coronavirus. God, end it right now. And I'm not saying we don't pray. We should pray like that for sure. But here is what we find when we study Scripture. When we pray for the action of God to move and do something, we are praying for the hand of God. The hand represents the power of God. The Bible speaks about the eyes and the ears. speaks about the feet of God, all these things. We're praying for the hand of God, the power of God to move when we ask Him to intervene and act in a situation. But here's what you got to understand. If we're going to get the hand of God, actually what we need is we need to first seek his face. Does that make sense? The face is the countenance of God. It's the knowing him. It's the worshiping him. It's the favor and pleasure of God as he looks upon us. See, we want the hand, but we've got to first seek the face. Say, God, move. Turn your heart back to me. (laughs) Uh, God, move. I want your whole heart. (laughs) Yeah, I'll move, but i got to get your heart. You see that? That's what's happening here in this situation with these people. Second Chronicles chapter 7 says it's the whole scripture that we pray over our nation all the time. And the Lord says, hey, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. Do you get that? Seek my face and repent and pray. Then I'll hear from heaven and I will come and I will hear their land. If you seek my face, you'll get the hand. That's what he's saying. And we're wanting a hand, and we just like, we're just not looking in his face. We gotta 
press into majoring in our knowing of God, how we know Him. And I think to myself, 2020, let's roll back a little bit in time and let's go back to January 2020. And we're 2020, year of vision, year of clarity. God's going to bring 2020 vision into our lives in this year. It's a year of clarity. It's a year of understanding. It's a year of vision opening up. And I just got to tell you, I think maybe that's exactly what it is. I think maybe that's exactly what he's doing. But we think, March comes, COVID hits. Oh, that's out the window. It's not a year of vision anymore. It's a year from hell. But what if? What if this very much is, in fact, the year of vision? And we've just not been looking for the right thing to get it. What if God has allowed the surface beneath us that we've been trusting in to shift beneath our very feet so that he can get our attention to say, I I've never really had your whole heart, and that's what I want to get. And if this is what it's going to take, then you're going to be in a better place after that. Oh, if God can get our attention. You see, this year, it amazes me. How many things that we have majored in. There's a book called Outliers by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He introduces a principle. It's really interesting. He says to become an expert in any particular field or subject matter, that there's several variables, but one key important factor is that it takes approximately 10,000 hours invested in that particular area to become an expert. If you did it for 40 hours plus a week, it's about four or five hours. Just an interesting principle, right? So here we come into... 2020 and COVID hits and we're all isolated. We're all in quarantine for months and we can't go places and do anything. And all of a sudden now, we've got a lot of time. And we've mastered some things. We've majored in some things this year because of the time that we had to invest in that. It fascinates me. I never knew that we would come out of 20 with 2020 with so many infectious disease experts. I had no idea. I feel so safe now. I do. You guys are all doctors. We're all so smart. Infectious disease, political issues, court cases that we know all the details of. We've majored in Zoom. Well, some of us are. It's going to take more than $10 an hour for me to major in that. I'm telling you right now. Click the mute button. <laughs> So I haven't figured that out yet. We've majored in all of these things. Oh, man, I'm telling you, I'm going somewhere. Listen, at the beginning of this year, I, I know that for the most amount of people that I talk to that really have a heart for God, most people say, I want to grow closer to God. I want to read my Bible more. I want to pray more. I want to go deeper. I want to know God more. But the number one reason you always seem to kind of get down to, if you ask some probe questions, is, well, I just, I just don't really have the time. Yeah, I got 25 games with my kids per weekend. I got all these extracurricular activities, these hobbies, and I got extra work and all these things going on. I got to afford the house, got to afford the car, I got to do all You know, really, I just don't have the time. Number one reason. Now, 2020, COVID. 
you got all the time in the world. Let me ask you a question. Did that solve it? Did that solve it? You see, for the vast majority, we've just now begun majoring in other things. Hmm. Maybe it was never a time issue to begin with. Maybe it was a heart issue. Maybe it was never about time. Maybe God's trying to say, I'm trying to get you to reorient your heart to where I have all of it. And that's the clarity that you need in your life right there. And that will set everything else in order to operate by the power of my hand in your life. It's a setting of heart properly. I think about myself, honestly, even with preaching and teaching and doing what I do. I, I just, I want to be a great preacher. I want to teach the word of God. I study, I labor, I prepare. I want to be great at it. I don't think it's bad for me to tell you that. It's a huge part of what I do. I want to be great at it. But I, God's just been wrecking me with this whole thing lately because I got to tell you, I've seen that there are pastors who can major in presentations, in delivery, in preaching, and still minor in knowing Him. And it can happen. And God's just brought me to a place where I said, if this was the last message that I ever preached, He's still going to get my whole heart. He's still going to get everything of me. Because it's not about what I do, it's about who has called me to do it. It's about the relationship that I have with him. And this isn't just a pastor's priority. It's a child of God's priority. I hope you know that. So, oh yeah, of course the pastor needs to know God. The pastor needs to understand God. He needs to have a relationship with God and know his ways, what he's saying, what he's doing. This is, this is a priority, the most important priority for every single child of God. He's not number one for the pastor and competing for runner-up in everybody else's life. He's number one everywhere. And I just, I wonder, what if the populous pastor Mike of the church, the majority populace of the body of Christ in our generation right now, were at a place where God had our whole hearts. Oh, how different our communities might look. Wow, if we were majoring in this, Jump down to over to Jeremiah chapter 24. And now they're in captivity. Okay? Now it's happening. They're being deported by the masses into Babylon. Jeremiah gets a vision. This is remarkable. The Lord just kind of opened this up to me recently. I never, I mean, I've read this before, but never really had it speak to me the way it just did. And we'll just read the vision here. In 24, it says. The Lord showed me that there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Yeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths, and from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. Everybody say first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. 
Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent, listen to this, out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them in captivity for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Here we go. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as for the bad figs which cannot be eaten, that they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. In Israel, the figs and the dates and the pomegranates are just unbelievable. They're remarkable. It's never had a fig until you had one from there. We were uh, in Jericho, actually, the first time we went on a tour, and we went to this place and got these uh, booths, and we got this fresh-squeezed glass of pomegranate juice. Oh, I mean, it was like nectar from heaven. I had a glass of that, and I think I went 10 years younger right there. It was just so good. I thought, man, that is unbelievable. So when we went back the second time when we were hosting the tour, we were heading to Jericho, and I was like, we, we got to go get that pomegranate juice. We, we got to get a glass of pomegranate juice. And everybody's like, yeah, well, the, the walls of Jericho. Yeah, yeah, the walls. You know, we got to get the pomegranate juice. I'm telling you. But he's talking about these figs and this vision, and there's, there's basically two types of figs. And there's a shaking and a sifting that happens. Obviously, we know it's the destruction that's coming. And that sifts two different groups of figs. It separates. And any time that there's trial and tribulation, can I tell you something? It begins to separate and show us who really is for God and stands on solid ground and who doesn't. And so these figs are being separated. It says there's good figs and then there's bad figs. And the bad figs, this is what's interesting. He says, I, that basket, I keep it in place. And, and then it gets destroyed and run over because they're bad figs. He says, that's, that's Zedekiah, the current king in Judah, all of his princes and all of his regime who have not turned their hearts back to me and who have become apostates. He says, all of them are actually going to stay here in Jerusalem, in the promised land, and then the destruction is going to overtake them. So when they stay in the place that they think was good, it actually ends up worse off for them in the long run because they don't end up changing. He says, the good figs, I take them out and I go and I do something with them. I do a work with them and then I bring them back. And he likens that to, the, to those of Israel that have went into captivity that he brings back. And he says, while they're in Babylon, while they're in captivity, I'm going to do something that's actually for their good. Meaning, this hardship is actually a tool that I will use to do something that will actually bring them back from this hardship in a much better state than they were before they went into it. 
It's interesting because he calls them first ripe figs. He says they're first ripe. They're good. So they obviously, in their heart, love the Lord. But they're first ripe. It's the early ripening. It's starting to ripen and starting to mature. But he says, they don't act, I don't actually have their whole heart. They love me, they're, they're, they want me, but at the end of the day, they're minoring in me and they're majoring in all of these other things. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow this hardship to happen. I'm going to take them out into a place and I'm going to ripen them. I'm going to do something that's going to actually allow these first ripe figs to ripen and to get rich and get ready. And what that means and what that looks like is I'm going to bring them to a place where their whole heart comes back to me. Where I have a part of their heart that I haven't been able to shift them out of to lay other things down so they can really lay hold of me. I'm going to allow this hardship to happen so that I can reorient them. And then when I bring them back, they're going to be brought back in a better state they were than when they left. And it's all about the heart. It's nothing about any of these other things. Says that's work I'm getting ready to do. Wow, that blows my mind. That blows my mind. They go into a hardship and they come back in a better place than where they were before. This is what I'm trying to say to us today, church. Listen, we are in pandemic. It is going to end. I don't know when, but it's going to end. Every season, there's a beginning and there's an end. It's going to end. When it ends, so we come back in a better place than we were before. Will we be able to say, in this difficult season of hardship, I've allowed God to reorient my heart? Because I'm telling you right now, please hear me. I'm telling you, if we come out of this thing and God doesn't have our whole heart after all of this, we are in a far worse place than even in the pandemic. I hope that that speaks to you today. God is saying, who will turn their whole heart to me? I'm going to jump into Matthew chapter 13 and this is the second question that I want to ask you to ask yourself should I change my major many of you in school maybe you changed your major a few times you realize this isn't what I want to major in <laughs> I thought that's what I wanted to major in that's not what I want to major in change my major do we need to change our major? Because, listen to me, if we're going to major in God, I promise you, you're going to have to minor in everything else. You can't major in everything. Has this year that we've been through allowed your heart to get to the place that it needs to be with God? If not, might I suggest that the current formula is not working. It's not working. And there's a heart change, not a time change that needs to happen. Jesus introduces two parables that are incredibly powerful. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. 
two back-to-back parables about the kingdom of heaven. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid for joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has, and then he buys that field. And he jumps into another parable. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Obvious implication here is that the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, is in fact Jesus himself. It's our relationship with him. It's our place in the kingdom. He says, this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. It's so good, and it's so important that it's worth selling and discarding everything else. It's worth minoring in everything else else so that you can major in this one thing that matters but what we sometimes do is we think well i want that hidden treasure i want that pearl of great price but i don't want to sell everything that i own to get it i'll keep everything that i own and i'll figure out how to get the pearl and the treasure and i'll fit it in and it'll work somehow it'll work and god ends up having part of our heart not our whole heart not sure if I'm speaking to anybody today, but I think this is what God might be saying. And I've had the thought, I've wondered, I don't know the answer to this question, but I've wondered, when people hear a message like this, when the church, not just our church, but you know, the body of Christ, hears a message like this, how do we respond? And I wonder, ask myself the question. In the church today, in America, all that's going on, we'll see how we come out of this thing today. Do we have a church that's full of a bunch of rich young rulers who will hear a message like this, lay everything down, give your heart entirely to me, who will hear a message like this, and then go away sad? to many things. I think God is very precise right now in what he is doing. And I think much like the people heard the call from God, give me your whole heart. God is saying to his people right now in this pandemic, I'm preserving you. I've got nothing but good planned for you. I intend to bring you out of this thing better off than you came into this thing. But my whole mission, whole agenda, is about one thing. It's about your heart. And me getting all of it. And I'll close with this. I, I felt like this is what the Lord said. So I just submit it to you and you do what you want with it. I feel accountable to say it because the Lord laid it on me. But the first ripe figs another way that you can look at that is it's the first fruits the early ripening of the harvest the first ones that come in small portions the majority are still on the vine not matured not ripened the first ripe ones are the early ripening what's interesting is the first fruits Israel would gather and then they would bring 
to the temple of the Lord, and they would bring it as an offering to him. They would present that to God, and then when God received that, he would bless the rest of the harvest. The Bible says in the New Testament that if the first fruits are holy, then the entire lump is holy. It's a leavening concept. Y'all follow me on that? So here's what I thought the Lord said. And I'm presenting it to you, and I want you to pray about it and ask yourself, is this the word of the Lord? like the Lord's saying to his church, to his people. First ripe figs, first fruits, early on, bless the rest. I feel like he's saying to his people, to his church today, right now. I'm looking for a first fruits offering. I'm looking for the first fruits of my church to come in. I'm looking for the first fruits to come in and to turn their whole heart to me. And if I'll get a first fruits offering, I'll bless the rest of the harvest. What will we do with this? I wonder. I've resolved that for me, and I need help, so much help. And that's why I'm encouraged when I hear him say, I will give you the heart to know me. Did you catch that? This is a bit mysterious reality that I have to exercise my will. I have to lay my will down for his. I have to make a choice. I have to lean in and I have to choose God. But there's this mysterious reality that once I do that, he gives me the heart to go the rest of the way. That I could never actually get myself there on my own, with my own will. That I have to make the choice to move. I have to make the choice to lay down minor and other things. But when I do, and God peers into where my heart is ripening, he says, I'll give them the heart to go the rest of the way that they may know me. Hallelujah. Is that your desire today? Father, in Jesus' name. Oh. Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you speak to each of us all in the depths of our heart? I pray, God, that we would be perceptible and in tune not dull-hearted to what you are saying and doing right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You are holy, God. You are holy. We revere you. We love you, Lord. You're so welcome in this place, and you are welcome in our hearts. 
Oh, would you reorient us now, God, whatever way we need to be.